Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? Patient Zero of the Remainer Mind Virus. <laughs> I'm Andrew Harrison. On today's show, no sooner has Richard Sharp been forced to quit the chairmanship of the BBC over his connections with Boris Johnson than there's a witch hunt on for Sue Gray. It appears that Simon is on her case, do you see? Is this going to carry on until there's literally nobody left in any jobs anywhere at all? Plus, the nightmare in Sudan... And Arthur Snell, host of the new series of Doomsday Watch, is here to give us the latest from Ukraine. And finally, as the world bids a sad farewell to Tucker Carlson, who are the news anchors we actually like? Right, let's meet the panel. First up, commenter and bon vivant, Alex Andreo. Hello, Alex. Hello. So it's local elections week. They're coming up on Thursday. Labour has a commanding poll lead. It's been narrowing a bit, but it's still between 14 and 18%. What would count as a good performance for them this time around? So an aggregate is about between 14 and 15%. Um, um, that excludes sort of outliers. So that's a good one to look at. So um, Tories say they expect to lose over 1,000 seats. Uh, Labour say they expect to win a couple of hundred. So presumably the Lib Dems are about to storm into being the UK's biggest party with a landslide. Everybody's <laughs> low-balling like crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's that old chestnut expectation management. Um, John Curtis, uh, who doesn't have a horse in this race, says Labour need to win about 500 to be in line for a comfortable big win. The Tories go into this from a real low. We have to remember that context. So the last time this cohort voted was... Theresa May's final couple of months. In fact, it's these local election results that brought her down. You remember she came out and apologised oh. to all the party activists and campaigners for such a poor result. And it was like two months later that Johnson was in charge. So it will be difficult to argue for Sunak that he's repairing the party if he does worse than May did at her lowest ebb, oh. right? So theoretically, there is this weird grade area of, let's say, the Tories losing 700 and Labour winning 400 of those, in which both major parties sort of lose momentum. And there's sensible money on that actually being the result. Well, we're going to, at the end of the week, we're going to be doing a little special edition with the results, which we can look back and find out if, uh, if the Curtis prediction was, was achieved. Oh, brilliant. I look forward to that. Marie LeConte is a columnist. She's the author of Haven't You Heard about hot Westminster gossip and Escape about how young people are shaping the internet on an increasingly hot planet. Hello, Marie. How are you? Hello. I'm very well. How are you? Uh, not bad. So it's Coronation Week and you've been writing about anointing spoons, apparently. What the hell is an anointing spoon? Can you use it for cornflakes? As far as I can tell, there's nothing in any law that says that you cannot eat cornflakes with an anointing spoon. Uh, what I will say is that the one uh, they are going to use at the coronation, I believe, is called a split in two. Not sure why. So it's actually quite a fun... So I'm not obviously I'm not, I'm not a massive royalist, but the spoon specifically is actually quite interesting. Split in two. We are literally um, so doing me and my spoon. <laughs> <laughs> it's been that A, no one really knows how old it is. Uh, or where it really came from. And so we know it's definitely been around for over 800 years. There's some in my drawer, yeah, sorry, that are exactly <laughs> like that. Yeah. No one knows how old they are. I was, you fiend, I was building up to that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so not entirely sure where it, where it comes from. It's sort of been around for a very long time. We know that it was used to anoint some kings and then not some others. And what is chrism oil and why does it come out the beak of a golden eagle? <laughs> It's, um, I will not be saying any of the 17 <laughs> jokes that uh, first came into my head when you asked that. Uh, so actually, chrism oil is... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it is not... <laughs> okay, we've established that his dark materials are the documentary. <laughs> I mean, five minutes into this and you're already there. It's actually olive oil. Oh, it's olive oil. It's really that's no what they want you to think. Okay, all right. <laughs> right. Fair enough. And completing the panel, Arthur Snell, former diplomat, author of How Britain Broke the World, as seen on TV on the lap of a diplomat on telly this week, and host of Doomsday Watch, which has just started its fourth season. We're calling it the first draft of history on Russia's war in Ukraine. Hi, Arthur. Hello. So uh, we're going to talk about Sudan uh, and Ukraine and the new series later in the show. But you've also been keeping an eye on this national conservatism thing which is just materialised and seems incredibly worrying. What is this? What is this? Yeah, so there's a big conference happening in London, middle of May, uh, run by a sort of global think tanky thing based out of the US. 
and it's the NatCon conference. And I suppose anyone who's lived through the last few years in the UK or, frankly, in anywhere in the world would be a little bit suspicious of the concept of national conservatism. Um, But when you dig into it, it doesn't get any better. They're about encouraging all the things that we think of as the worst side of conservatism with uh, none of the very limited upsides. And, and, And what's so extraordinary about this NatCon conference is that Loads of people are appearing as speakers, including people like Michael Gove, who, whatever one might think of him, is always trying to make conservatism a kind of mainstream mm. sort of acceptable thing. So it's it's a bit of a mystery to me why this has got such a big sort of uh, take up, but but it seems to be a, a big deal. It, it just you know going for a, a rebranding, which literally echoes another problematic political tradition with national in its name seems almost like trolling at this stage. You know, they want people like us to go, it sounds just like national socialism, so they can hop up and take terrible offence at it. Yeah, and, and I suppose if you if you say, well, wh- what would national conservatism be? You Let's think of some recent case studies where you've got Bolsonaro, you've got Donald Trump, uh, you've got Viktor Orban. Um, so it's not as if we don't have case studies of why this might be a slightly troubling direction to go in in democratic politics. So the idea that this is a big thing that we can all celebrate and go to a conference about is really weird. I have a horrible feeling we'll be coming back to this a lot. (laughs) Before we start a date for your diaries, the next Oh God What Now Live is happening in London on Wednesday 24th of May at the Leicester Square Theatre. The three of us will be on stage for an evening of quality political squabbling. That's me, Arthur and Marie, while Roz Taylor will be steering the rather rowdy ship. It'll be a tremendous night with plenty to chew on, not least the results of the local elections, and we'd love to see you there. Tickets are on sale now at leicestersquaretheatre.com, and Patreon people get a discount, of course. Just check your inbox. So come along. We'd love to see you. Now, this week in the ongoing succession Game of Thrones mashup known as British Politics, it appears that Sue Gray, the former Partygate investigator, who is set to become Keir Starmer's chief of staff, will be criticised in a Cabinet Office report for allegedly beginning job talks with Starmer during the Partygate inquiry. But the Cabinet Office report itself is under heavy criticism as a vendetta driven by Cabinet Secretary Simon Case, who is himself on thin ice after his involvement in Richard Sharp's resignation as BBC chairman. Have you got that? I'm not sure I have. Sharp finally stepped down on Friday over failing to disclose his role in that £800,000 loan to Boris Johnson while he was still in the running to take over at the BBC. The political historian Anthony Selden says Case has left the civil service never weaker, more demoralised or less powerfully led that he should quit. So where does all this leave us? Look, we've got to start with Sue Gray. Alex, I have a very complicated question for you. What's going on here? Okay, it it actually is a rather complicated answer, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. So I've been on the blower to various contacts to try and find out what is happening. The media uh, uh, speculation today, Tuesday, as we record, was sparked off by the government putting a written ministerial statement on the order paper in the Commons saying that they would update the house on the circumstances around a senior civil servant leaving the civil service. Um, As of uh, half five, which it is now, the statement is still not on there. Commonly, statements like this would be published by 3 p.m. at the latest. Mm -hmm. So why is there suddenly hesitation and trouble? The reason is this. This is not the ACOBA report. ACOBA is the body that will decide whether Sue Gray needs to be on gardening leave for a while, basically on a conflict of interest of a person leaving the civil service. This is an internal HR report done by the Cabinet Office on Sue Gray, intended to be evidence that is given to ACOBA to try and influence its finding. But since this became known, there have been questions, real questions from people close to Sue Gray and Labour, going, under what authority are you doing an HR report on a former member of staff? There is literally zero precedent for this, let alone 36 hours before a local fucking election. Mm -hmm. So this is what the Tories have done. They sparked all the speculation, leaked selective 
quasi-findings to the Telegraph and various friendly press people. So for the entire day, the story that's been running is, oh, this dodgy Sue Gray stuff. But now that it comes to publishing it, they're in hot water because they might get sued and rightly Mm. sued. If a company I used to work for suddenly decided to publish a confidential HR report that they did ex post facto on me without me having a right to reply, I would sue them to fuck. I really hope this doesn't catch on because if my former employees get wind of this, my my (laughs) former bosses, it could get really nasty. Seriously, though, this is outrageous. It is without precedent in about 10 different ways. So, but they're all, haven't they just snookered themselves as well, though? Because. If you don't get it out today, you're putting it out the day before local elections. And if you don't put it out then, you're letting it hang over the local elections. There's no there's no good, honest move on this. Which is what should have been decided from the word go. But they've basically manipulated to grab the headlines. I mean, the whole thing is nonsense anyway. The, the, the report on Johnson was published on the 25th of May, 22. Johnson resigned on the 7th of July, 22. And not over Partygate. I cannot emphasize this enough because the narrative that basically recasts history is that Sue Gray made Johnson resign. Sue Gray helped him hold on to his job. Well, was it? I remember him very clearly saying that she, she was had going, exculpated him. Yes. And Sue Gray's first discussion with Labour was not until the 3rd of November mm-hmm. 22, months later. So all this is just utter bullshit and would not be flying if the press like the Telegraph, the Mail, were applying the journalistic rigor that the public ought to expect from them. So whether it's Dirty Pearl or not, how tricky is this for Starmer? You know, he has been very clear about presenting himself as Captain Clean and then to have a report, however biased and however bad faith and however maybe in pursuit of a vendetta by Simon Case. I think, and I, I, I may be wrong because obviously I think that, you know, that the, the papers never fail to amaze and astound us, but I'm not entirely sure how this could really be spun. Like, you know, I think that the Labour narrative of saying actually we are so keen on getting ready for government that we are willing to hire someone who is very senior in government to help us, you know, get ourselves in shape will always be stronger than anything else. But but yes, I'm, I'm not really sure what, what conclusion could be reached um, that would make Starmer look bad. I think there are conclusions that could probably make Gray look bad and look a bit duplicitous, but I'm not really sure on the Labour side there's anything they should feel overly worried about. But then again, you know, the, the Mel and the Sun may may uh, make me change my mind. Yeah, I mean, they really have got gone for him today. There was a, a, a extremely thin bit of stuff in from Harry Cole in the Sun about how Britain rejects woke with a gigantic picture of Keir Starmer, and these are all issues which rate very very low on people's concerns. No, no, but also, crucially, that data, so I absolutely love that story because that data still showed that a majority of people want gender to be taught in schools. Mm. More people than not uh, think that trans uh, trans women are women. More people than not think we should stay in the ACHR. That actually, even if you look yeah. at the data in the story, it says that Britain is entirely nonplussed about work and occasionally even a little bit work itself. I would love to say some headlines of Britain entirely nonplussed. Um, <laughs> it's actually, I mean, it is quite a good day, though, for other things to be fogging up politics because Starmer's not been having a great day today. The interview on the State programme wasn't fantastic. He's about to pull the promise to scrap uh, university tuition fees. He's, you know, we know about the sort of the pledges on nationalising energy and water companies dropping the increased tax for high earners. I mean, if you wanted somebody to throw a lot of chaff in the air, this is the day you'd want it to happen, isn't it, if you're Keir Starmer? I don't know. On that whole issue, I basically have about seven different opinions, all of which can contradict each other. Because, um, I don't know. So on the one hand, I have a lot of sympathy for people, especially on the left of Labour, saying, hang on, you know, he made all those promises, he's breaking all of them. It shouldn't even really matter where you stand on those policy issues. It is a concern that he's willing to break all those promises, which I sort of get. But then I also, I think, have a lot of sympathy for people saying, actually, since he made those promises, you know, there's basically been like a war in Europe, Listras being prime minister and a world, uh, a worldwide pandemic. So mm. actually... You know, the world has changed, Britain has changed, and it's fine to change. But, you know, again, that I don't know, that, that being said, I'm not, you know, how, especially at a time, I think, when we had, again, Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, etc., we had prime ministers who were not very trustworthy. Does Labour really want to paint itself into the corner of saying, eh, actually, we're totally fine breaking all our promises as well. We're all the same. 
Back to, to great Arthur, the speed with which the Conservatives have gone for her is quite amazing. 12 months ago, we were just talking about it. It was, you know, she was unimpeachable. She was the absolute, uh, you know, the, pill the pillar of rectitude because they could portray her as having uh, exonerated um, Boris Johnson. Now there are serious questions and it's all coming from the Telegraph. What are you taking from this? Uh, what I'm taking is that the opinion of Sue Gray is uh, entirely mobile because I think before she was unimpeachable, she was also questionable. Uh, and there were stories about her background and, and the slightly intriguing bit where she was running a pub in Northern Ireland and the suggestion that she wasn't, you know, completely a Tory party activist. So the thing about the modern Tory party is it's completely incapable of understanding the idea that people could be independent or uh, make judgments based on the morality and ethics of individual behavior. And everything is about the, the partisan shift. So the second that she decided to work for Keir Starmer, she, nothing she ever did would ever be justifiable ever. Mm. Marie, is Simon Case doomed, do you think, with the reports that he's no longer in the number 10 meetings? He's kind of like basically been, been put in the outhouse? Um, yes. So I wonder if what's happening is not that Rishi Sunak, who, to be fair to him, has been quite good at on occasion making a considered decision and taking his time to, you know, make the right decision is maybe just kind of looking for someone at the moment. So that's why nothing has happened quite yet. But, um, mm. yeah, no, I, I, I would I would maybe start looking at LinkedIn uh, if I was Simon Case, just quietly. Well, he has been hammered for simply for not standing up to Johnson and the, and the last, the pre, last but one government. Uh, a former permanent secretary told The Times, the problem with Whitehall is that it operates too much like a court. And Simon is about the most extreme example of a courtier you can find. Mm. Um, is this an example of Boris Johnson contamination syndrome? Like everybody who touches Boris Johnson. Yeah, reverse Midas. Uh, but yes, yeah, so I, I think it's partly that. But also it's, I think, you know, um, Simon Case was, I believe, the youngest ever person to hold this post or to be appointed to that post. Um, and at a time when actually you probably needed a very strong hand to steer the ship of the civil service. Mm. And Boris Johnson knew exactly what he was doing because he did the same at the Treasury with Rishi Sunak, which arguably that one didn't work out quite as well for him. But um, so, so I don't know, you know, no, I, I have kind of read up on Simon Case's background. He is a proper lifelong civil servant. It's not, I'm not entirely certain that he's a terrorist terrible, terrible person, but it's just that he was worldly ever promoted um, for probably the reasons we can guess. So yeah, of course, now Boris is gone. Uh, he is floundering somewhat, especially because, yeah, the civil service, again, is not doing tremendously, I will say, um, and probably needs someone who can kind of restore a sense of calm and a sense of continuity, I suppose, in saying actually, you know, we can rebuild the relationship with the, with the government, which no one is convinced Simon Case is the person to do that. So, What about Richard Sharp then? I mean, I can imagine the Conservatives are quite glad that uh, it, it all fell apart just before the bank holiday so the story could just sit on the shelf while everybody was kind of away over the, over, over the long weekend. Firstly, you know, Murray, what does it mean that a serving Prime Minister actually would need a loan of £800,000? This kind of leaves him enormously beholden to the person making the loan, doesn't it? It feels that there should be laws against that. And I know that Parliament and, you know, Westminster in general really, really loves being very informal and the kind of good chap theory of government, etc. But that's one of those things that's like, hmm, that, that should just not be allowed at all for all the obvious reasons. Arthur, the story is that um, Richard Sharp set up a meeting between Simon Case and Johnson's cousin, Sam Blythe, the guy who'd offered to be the guarantor of the loan. We still don't know who made the loan. Have we any inkling of this? As, as, does any of us have any inkling of who has actually found £800,000 down the back of the settee for Boris Johnson? I, I mean, I think the thing is that once once you have the guarantor, it really doesn't matter. You know, it could be... It could, could be a bank. Yeah, it could be Barclays Bank because some, some multimillionaire is saying, when Boris misses his payments, because we all know he will, <laughs> I'll step in. But if it's a bank and a legitimate source, you would have thought that very, very early in the telling of this story, that fact would have come out. Well, may, maybe it's one of these banks, you know, so-called private banks that specialises in operating in a discreet fashion. And, um, you know, that's the, that's the way they, they're doing it. I was hoping you'd say it's definitely the FSB. That's well, why we have you on the podcast, Arthur. I, I genuinely think that, that he, he lucked out because he's got the um, third cousin who's, who's willing to underwrite everything. Um, Sharp went because he hadn't told the BBC appointments people that he had made this connection on the uh, on the Good Chaps network. Number 10, however, had made it clear that Sharp was their preferred candidate anyway. So why do we have an appointments process? Why don't we simply just have number 10 waves through whomever they wish? We like in this country to believe the fiction that these things are 
uh, independent, that you know the best person available happened happened to be a Tory donor, happened right. to be a long term supporter of Boris Johnson, but but he was genuinely the best person available. And of course, uh, there were plenty of other people who were interested in the role. Uh, one might wonder whether had they not you know had they donated significant sums to Tories, whether they might have got the job. Mm. Um, Alex, this is a this Conservatives are in a strange situation with the BBC having to simultaneously defend, although they've given it up since he's disappeared, but they were having to defend the appointment of one of their own and simultaneously insist that the corporation is a massive hotbed of wokery and absolutely terrible. What, what is, well, it is a tricky one. It's a funny one, isn't it? Yeah. What has this episode meant for the BBC, then? I mean, nothing really, uh, because the BBC is not in this mess just because of this or even mainly because of this. You know, the BBC is in trouble over this because of its of its weird notions over what constitutes balance and how it interacts with neutrality. This little loophole was discovered by politicians intensely since the Brexit uh, uh, referendum and has been exploited to get cranks on just saying, no, this data that you've just seen from the ONS, you know, government ministers saying the official government data is rubbish. I have better data mm. than this, you know, and, and you, can't, you can't get out of that situation until you redefine what is your mission, especially as a news organization. Is it to get to the truth or is it to represent both sides of everything? Well, the commitment the government has made has nothing to do with any of those things. It's simply to do with the the license fee will end. Culture Secretary Nadine Dorries uh, yeah. insisting this is this is the last one. Do you think that that given the given the change in regime, but also the kind of you know we possibly have seen the high point of the Conservative project of capturing and colonising the BBC with people yeah. like Sharp and Robbie Gibb, that you might actually see that extreme position on the BBC ebb out, so that the license fee might get a further shot. Maybe, actually. I mean, I think the licence fee will get a further shot, ultimately, if we get a Labour government next, mm. actually. Um, so, you know, if if you want to know the simple fix to saving the BBC, as it were, and redefining its mission so that it's not the insanity that I just described, like, vote for a Labour government. For the second time in two years, the government has organised an evacuation from a war zone and for the second time, the process has been beset by farce and scandal. This time, a conflict between military factions in Sudan has forced British citizens to evacuate to a Khartoum airstrip. But some non-Brits who were living in the UK before the war have been told to make their own way home, including over two dozen NHS doctors. Some 100,000 people have fled Sudan since fighting worsened, and the UN is warning of an all-out catastrophe. I mean, Arthur, you've been on this topic for some time. There's an episode about Sudan in in Doomsday Watch uh, early on. South Sudan is the youngest country in the world. It broke away from Sudan in 2011. Is this just a factional fight between two warlords, or is it representing something deeper? Well, I think it represents something deeper in the sense that uh, Sudan was at one point literally the largest country in Africa. It was basically a British colony, albeit uh, complicated because it, there were Egypt also had a sort of role there. It's a huge place, uh, never a coherent country. And right from the beginning, 1955, so it was one of the first countries in Africa to get independence, there was a struggle between North Sudan, which is basically an Arab country, and South Sudan, which is now an independent country, which was what we, what we might call a, a sort of African country. Um, and But it, it's not as simple as that. And of course, that, that even within both South Sudan and Sudan, there are endless factions and groups. And, and unfortunately, this plays out in a lot of conflict. I want to ask you about how uh, Britain's been handled this. I mean, in, on the evacuation of Afghanistan, Dominic Rab was in, infamously literally on the beach. Uh, for all of his many faults, James cleverly has sounded a bit more normal than his colleagues in the past few weeks. What's your assessment of how Britain's been handling the refugee issue and the evacuation issues? Yeah, so I think if, if we're going to contrast cleverly with Rob, I think uh, he's he's done a reasonable job and it may partly be. And, and if we look at what happened when Rob's career collapsed on the bullying stuff, uh, because cleverly 
probably isn't a bully and probably lets people get on with their jobs. And in that sense, it's been better. However, there's been a lot of problems and, and not the least of which is that uh, the Brits carried out a very successful operation to evacuate British diplomats and officials. Uh, but the huge numbers of British citizens were left behind in Sudan just as both France and Germany uh, managed to evacuate all of their citizens. Now, the Foreign Office will say, yes, but we had thousands and there were only hundreds on the European side. But it does feel like an illustration of the difference that happens when you are a country that wants to go it alone versus a country that's a member of a big global club. Is it also an illustration of what happens you know, when the government's conservative and the stranded people are not white? That might be uh, a reasonable question. I mean, as you mentioned, there are... There's quite a lot of people who are dual nationals. Now, mm -hmm. traditionally, um, diplomatic services take a different view of dual nationals than they do to single country nationals. So if you're, you know, British Sudanese and you're in Sudan, uh, your rights are not the same as someone who's only British. And that might sound harsh, but if you think about it for a moment, you can see the argument, which is, well, you know, you, you, this is also your country. Uh, do, do you need to be evacuated? But I think the the challenge with all these issues is that at the moment that there's a news story, and we've all heard these interviews where someone is literally on the Today program speaking live from Sudan and there are bombs going off. At that point, the debate about what the sort of official uh, status of an individual it kind of falls away because mm. what you're saying is, here's a guy who's saying that my children are crying because there are bombs going off and what are you going to do about it, British government? And, you know. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to make a very quick parochial point because um, that's my thing. So, 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 I mean, talking to people at the Foreign Office, actually, James Cleverly seems to be quite a good Secretary of State. I mean, I think everyone, including him, is slightly baffled that he's ended up being Foreign Secretary. But post especially Truss and Rob, apparently the atmosphere has become better after some years of misery. Not so keen on the pictures of him, like, hanging around with Ron DeSantis, but <laughs> I suppose you've got to... These are some of the things you have to do when you're in that job. I, maybe having someone who knows their limitations... Uh, yeah. I don't think even James Cleverly has ever had a view of himself as a sort of great leader of, of, of you know, and, and in that sense, he is different to Rob and, and Truss, who I think have a massively inflated mm. opinion of themselves. And he's certainly not going to send brief, you know, briefs to rescue people back because the font is wrong, like yeah. Rob did. Mm. Yeah. I also have to say he seems to have a genuinely better relationship with David Lammy. Right. And I think that is mm. actually That's an important helpful. element yeah. of this. I, I saw their, their sort of Q&A and... And Lamy was genuinely thankful to him because he has provided all the briefings mm -hmm. and cleverly responded by saying, thank you for your tone. Mm. It's been constructive. We've talked behind the scenes. Those are reasonable questions and went on to answer, answer them one by one. And I think there is a lot to be said for adult politics, actually, whatever side of the well, politics. He's just quite a friendly to. chap, which I know the bar is very low, isn't it? Yeah, the <laughs> bar is very low, and, and he's rather underqualified. But it turns out he's one of the, the underqualified people that know when to listen to their officials. Our listeners are going to hate this. Yeah, I mean, the, the Cleverly cleverly show. <laughs> yeah, Arthur, I want to ask you about, um, you know, the kind of the, the, the larger perspective on this, which is, you know, Britain has got a large weight of not very great history with Africa. You know, we are wrestling with the history of empire and everything horrible that goes with that. Meanwhile, Russia and China are trying to boost their legitimacy in the region by investing in Africa. Why are we not using what we've got, our, our limited resources, to build bridges instead of just treating Africa as a dumping ground for our deportees? Well, certainly the, the Rwanda policy, you know, it, it feels excessively narrow and the way that it shows that our, as you say, our main objective with Africa is, is, is as a place you can park people that you don't want in your own country. I think that there is an issue when we contrast, say, with Russia and China, and this is not unique to Britain. If you look across uh, Western countries that have large aid programs, there is often this issue where the fact that you're a generous aid donor, and Britain, even, even with the reduced aid that we've had in recent years, we're still a very generous aid donor. But of course, we do things like saying, well, we're going to check on whether this aid is spent appropriately, and we're going to ensure that there are not huge bribes paid to politicians. Whereas Russia and China will do the opposite. So I think we make it difficult for ourselves, but sometimes for very good reasons. Uh, but sometimes we make it difficult difficult for ourselves for bad reasons, as we're doing with Rwanda. Mm. Is that 
idea of um, you know if you're up against effectively Chinese and Russian bribery, is is that the reason for our kind of or the Conservatives' pivot to aid is going to be linked to trade? It might be, although I, I fear that a lot of that is is about the domestic uh, market, where it was one of the things that set David Cameron apart as a different kind of Tory. That for all his own privilege and and you know the the backstory and the Bullingdon Club and all that, he got the argument that as a wealthy country we should look to invest in countries that are not as wealthy and that investment might take the form of aid or it might be classic commercial investment. Um, and the regression of the Conservative Party since 2016 includes the regression away from uh, the idea of, of aid. And of course, Boris Johnson did the classic, the bloke in the pub who says, well, I don't think we should have a great big cash machine. And that's oh. literally what he said in the House of Commons. So it, it shows the intellectual limitations of, of modern conservatism. And, and I, think, I think that's basically what we're dealing with. How, how do you think the Sudan uh, current episode is going to play out? Because, I mean, it seems that the, the fighting is slightly lulled, but you have a better perspective than me. The latest today, so we're recording on Tuesday, is is that it, things are pretty bad. It's very uncertain. No one seems to have a, a a clear idea of what could be done to resolve the conflict. And if we try to understand what are the underlying issues, so you have the the RSF, which is the one faction, uh, is very uh, well resourced with allies in the Gulf, particularly Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, and then the other side, the as it were, the classic uh, government, albeit. Uh, government in a borderline failed state is an interesting concept, but the government has support from Egypt and one or two other countries. And therefore, you, both sides are well supported, well resourced. And I think it feels at the moment a bit like a fight to the death. I want to ask you uh, a bit about the new series of Doomsday Watch, uh, which is telling the story of the Ukraine war. Um, you were on the podcast last week from Kiev. Uh, episode two is out tomorrow. I was listening to episode three over the weekend, which is coming out in a couple of weeks' time, about the astonishing war crimes committed by Russia in the invasion, and it's just staggering. Um, when we spoke to you from Kiev, you predicted that there would be a new wave of you know potential missile missile attacks, and they actually did happen. Well, you know, what did you come away from uh, Kiev thinking about the way the conflict is going? I, I mean, I was only there for a short period of time, and and you end up with with a very intense set of um, kind of uh, findings or, or recollections. Uh, certainly, the, the point about Russian airstrikes. Um, in a way, it's all the Russians have got left, you know, on the ground that their, their army has really achieved nothing at all. And, you know, they spent 10 months trying to take Bakhmut, which, as I think I've said in the podcast, is a town the size of Bogner Regis. So strategically, not necessarily very significant, but they, you know, they've thrown literally thousands of men at it. Uh, but they do have cruise missiles. They can fire it at towns where there are uh, civilians and and they did that on the night that I happened to be there and and the few that got through and and you know Ukraine has great air defense but a few did get through and and about 30 people were killed including children so it is their ability to terrorize the population remains but I think if we think about where Ukraine is Ukraine is incredibly determined uh, and I think everyone knew that but really to go there and to see it with your own eyes is something and they are also very focused on the need for the West to continue supporting them, particularly with ammunition. Yeah, I mean, there's, is there much movement on that? Because, I mean, the US has been warning since February that Ukrainian ammunition would run out. There is, a, you know, a, it's a constant refrain. Yeah. Just recently, in March, the EU committed to supply Ukraine with a million artillery shells, which sounds like a huge number. Uh, it is a huge number. Uh, and of course, some of these shells have to be made according to particular, you know, spec to, to fit the, the Ukrainian uh, artillery pieces. And there is a genuine debate about whether or not the EU has the manufacturing capacity to do that. While I was there in Kiev, I was talking to some arms manufacturers based in, in Eastern Europe, and they're worried that it's not a lack of manufacturing capacity, but a lack of ability the, the Europe to just to get its shit together, to get the money to the right people, just to get organized. Now, one thing I have seen in, in, in other environments, in conflict environments, is it, it always feels like chaos, but you just have to be a bit less chaotic than the other side. And of course, I think Ukraine is a bit less chaotic than the Russian side. So 
It's not that I doubt the Ukrainians' ability to make progress, but I think there is still a lot that needs sorting out. So while we were talking, then both Alex and Marie suddenly went bonkers on their phones. What has happened? <laughs> um, so this, the the ministerial statement is out now, and it's a non-statement. This is on Sue Gray, it's yeah? So they're saying that they're it's announcing It's a holding yeah. statement. All they're saying is that Sue Gray declined to make representations into the inquiry, looking into her contact with... Keir Starmer, as she's entitled to do, because like I said, she doesn't fucking work for Oliver Town <laughs> anymore. And no further information will be released while Oliver Dowden considers next steps. So they basically got 24 hours near enough of all this negative publicity by leaking findings, which turn out not to be findings at all, and which they won't publish. And every single newspaper, like the Telegraph, which used to be a fucking newspaper of record 15 years ago, who should be furious that they were dragged into this by the government and should be splashing this U-turn on their front page tomorrow, will say nothing. But the front page tomorrow will be stop the Sue Gray whitewash. Yeah. It'll be stop the Gray wash. Finally, it's rare for a news anchor in another country to be even recognised abroad, but Fox's Tucker Carlson was a globally infamous figure. The moon-faced demagogue finally got the dirty digger's elbow last month, allegedly over misogynist language towards colleagues, but equally to carry the can for Fox's disastrous $780 million legal defeat by the voting machine company Dominion. It leaves Fox News without their biggest name 18 months from the next presidential election. Carlson may yet re-emerge on another network, or even as a presidential candidate one day. But forget him, who are the anchors we admire? Marie. Well, no, so mine is actually just a real bummer because like everyone in France of my generation, of actually generation before and after me as well, I grew up watching Patrick Poivre d'Arvor, who was the main sort of like um, news person, news anchor. And uh, yeah, a few years ago, he was accused of rape and sexual assault by 27 women. Oh, great. Um, so yeah, I can't really think of anyone else as uh, the problem. God, oh, like, that, he was really the main one you'd watch. He's occupying so, uh, a, quite a lot yeah. of the brain. Arthur, how about you? Well, I grew up watching Jeremy Paxman, I think at the sort of height of his powers. I'm sort of talking about the kind of mid mid to late 90s. And yes, in later life, he became a slightly sort of uh, comic figure. Mm. And, 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 and one wondered whether he could even be bothered to be there at all. He always looked a bit bored. But Jeremy Paxman, at the height of his powers on Newsnight, ripping apart sort of... Um, uh, kind of late period Tories of the John Major era was something to behold. Mm, yeah. Um, I, I used to find, because uh, I'm a bit older than you, Peter Sissons was particularly kind of, and I remember we, we actually used to, I mean, this sounds really pathetic, we used to actually rush home to see Peter Sissons because the guy was, was um, he just had, uh, he had he had a gravitas, but also a kind of quickness of, of mind. I'm also ancient enough to remember Brian Walden. Oh yes. Who would whose questions would go on for half an hour, maybe that infected me. You know, and you would see that you would see great sort of you know Tory grandees on Weekend World sitting there, sort of sinking into their chair as Brian Walden. This brings me to my second point. <laughs> and uh, you know, he just seems to like absolutely mash them down yeah. with the with the weight of experience and and um his kind of his terrifying stare. Um Alex, I'm gonna take a wild guess that's a Greek news readers are of a different flavour. Well, I've watched Greek television. They have a, there was a fantastic... It's, it's very different. Yes, I'm going to say. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, were the particular people that you saw that you kind of thought these um, I mean, I have lived in this country I know, for I know, but you over were 30 kid. years. You were a kid in um, Greece, in Mykonos. Yeah. Sure. Um, it was just after the, the junta. And, I mean, news was difficult. The, the, the uh, broadcaster of record... ERT, ERT, um, used to have very good people that used to do really straight reporting. So it was more along the lines of um, the American model of how print media separates itself very much between reports and opinion. Uh There was a really clear dividing line of these are the facts and now we're going to move on to someone chairing a conversation that will look at the opinion. And so there was less room to sort of manoeuvre. I think from this country, I think... The more I see of others, the more I miss David Dimbleby's uh-huh. chairing, actually, of Question Time, because he used to be firm, but he used to be 
sort of overtly fair and he used to make very few interventions but when he did make an intervention it was an intervention on fact and it actually shut people up who were trying to get away with telling a porky oh. and i really did like that no but there was a sense of authority i feel that came yeah. from him yeah well he was like a 1970s school teacher who smoked in the classroom and let the kids call him by his first name compared to robin day oh, who yes. i remember who wore a he wore a ridiculous bow tie, bow tie yes. and appeared to i mean if you saw him now you'd think this guy's come straight from cpac <laughs> but he was fantastic and also terrifying and you know key politicians would 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 cower yeah. he ran he ran question time like a, some kind of um, re-education camp I have a delightful bit of gossip on David Dimbleby, which is actually very gentle, but allegedly uh, he always kind of wanted to try acid when he was younger because everyone was doing it. I mean, it's kind of part of their generation where everyone tried it, but he was already at that point part of the team who the BBC would call if the Queen died. And apparently as a result thought, I can never take acid because, you know, that's just going to be my... Either that's just going to be my luck and the Queen will die and I'll have to go to Buckingham Palace <laughs> or I'll take Terrific. the acid and become so convinced that the Queen's about to die that I'm not going to have a good time. I can imagine yeah. Dimbleby on acid saying the Queen has merged with everything. And we are part of the Queen. <laughs> And the queen isn't and the real. The queen has died. And have you seen my hand? Yeah. <laughs> is this the whole story, Marie? Yeah. Oh no, which uh, was that? That's I a very gentle anecdote. I thought there was going to be a payoff that now that he's retired, <laughs> he dropped a tab and had a fabulous time. <laughs> just, just, I hope so. I hope so. I've not had an update. Spends but, uh, all day listening to Osric Tentacles. <laughs> um, a, a few weeks ago, we saw an AI-generated news host uh, making their debut in Q8. Uh, we are now basically trusting AI to tell us what's happening as it writes news reports. Um, Many news anchors these days are so artificial and stilted that you probably would not be able to tell the the difference. Do we have to st- steal ourselves for the arrival of the the characterless, smooth faced? Mary is pulling a terrible face here. She's frightened. Oh uh, no! It's just I was going to make a very smug point, and I'm very sorry. But as the as the young person on this panel, um, I have not watched TV news you know, for my entire adult life. Since I've moved out from my parents' house, I have not, mm. generally, I do not believe I've watched it once and it's my job to follow the news. Mm. So I, I wonder if there's not a generational thing here as well of actually people, you know, a lot of people under probably 35 are just not going to care because none of us have watched it. But you anyway. can't, you, the, the thing is you now can follow the news very closely while never watching the news. You yes. can follow it through every, every other channel. I mean, I think there are fantastic news, newscasters around now. I mean, I'm, you know, Martine Croxley used to do the papers on the BBC. I thought she was really good. She got empathetic and she got re- a bit over-enthusiastic about the story and was um, was benched for it, I think, most unfairly. Um, if you live in London, Alice Bandicravi on the local news, she's great. Uh, you know, there are good newscasters around there. And I'm, oh, Arthur? I, I want to uh, big up for Trevor MacDonald because as a former resident of Trinidad, um, let us not forget who Trevor MacDonald, obviously extremely familiar face in the UK, but had a whole previous history in Trinidad on on um, on the equivalent of the BBC there. And, and I, I met people there who remembered him. And to have crossed the Atlantic from a small island uh, broadcasting service and to have made it in the UK at, the, at that time when he did it, I think is mm. absolutely remarkable. And you know, you've got to take your hat off to him. Yeah, he's an absolute staple, isn't he? But that idea of an AI newsreader, if there's one place where you don't want the uncanny valley to kick in, you know that sort of... When, when it's nearly human, when it's nearly right, when it's very, but but the but the tiny increment where it isn't right makes it even worse than if it was just a you know an yeah, absolute. Can you imagine even... like some you know new pandemic or something being announced again by a sort mm. of uncanny valley person? Like yeah. you you would just not feel good about that. We'll all be fine. Mm. Remain in your homes, mm. and then a horrible kind of clip, you know, or one of the, an eye roll somewhere else. You know, absolutely horrible. It'll well, all be fine, fine, fine. fine. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, you may well have just been listening to an AI-generated podcast. Who knows? Who can tell? So, who are our current favourites then, Alex? Um, Sophie Ridge, head yep. and shoulders above anyone else out there at the moment. Comparing her Sunday morning program with Laura Kunzberg, it's just, it's like. It's like eating gelato and then having to lick the photocopy of an ice cream. <laughs> okay. it, she's astonishingly good at listening to what the other person is actually telling her rather than jumping forward on her list of questions. And if they're not answering the question, persisting or asking in a different way, or picking up a loose thread mm. and asking a question that wasn't planned. And there are very few people around that do that. So I would highly recommend Sophie Ridge on Sunday as a, a breath of fresh air of a political interview programme. Marie, how about you? Uh, I really like Emma Barnett 
I yeah. think yeah, she's that she's that really good combination of Jenny quite friendly and pally, but also clearly quite terrifying. Which A in general I respect in anyone, but B I think works really well. Um, as an interviewer and I remember I did a debate with her once um, on stage at an event uh, and it was very scary <laughs> it oh, was right. just yeah so you know she, she is quite tough I think but but again in a, in a sort of friendly way which is oh and Vic Derbyshire in that exact same oh, yeah, sort yeah. of vein she's really good we like the gals Waziki. we yeah. like the gals how about you Arthur well I, I, I'm just going to have to give some negative case studies so I think what GB News has shown us is that actually this is quite a difficult job. It's very hard. Yeah, and, and, and you think that you just sort of sit around and say some new stuff. But actually when Nadine Dorries is sort of incoherently burbling yeah. or when when Reese Mogg is having his ass handed to him by the wonderful Marina Perkis, you realise it's quite a difficult job and just getting some right-wing idiot on, onto the screen it doesn't do it. So we've come to the end of the show and it's time for the soothing mental balm that is Escape Routes. What are the things that have been distracting our panel this week from the horror of politics and current affairs? Marie. I went to see Polite Society at the cinema the other day and it is so fun. Like It's even sort of, it's quite unique, so it's quite hard to describe. But the, the basic plot is two sisters who are very close. The older sister meets this like really fancy Pakistani family, meets this guy in a sort of like arranged situation. But she seems happy with a little sister who wants to be a stunt double. is not. Yeah, it, she's not convinced. She feels that something's up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then stuff happens and it kind of, yeah, it's basically sort of like, yeah, Pakistani comedy and then family comedy, but also martial arts movie. And, hey, you know, and it, no, it, it's really, great. it's really odd, but it's so fun and funny. And I really, you know, when you kind of come out of a cinema and you're like, that was really not, especially in an era of kind of like cookie cutter yeah. cinema, like come out and you're like, that was very much its own thing. I um, would love to have been on delightful. the pitch for that. <laughs> what is it? It's a Pakistani family martial arts film. Yeah. Here's a load of money. Go and make it. Fantastic. I mean, it's a, that's a little bit how I felt coming out of everything everywhere all at once. Yeah. It's like they sure, really yeah. did their own thing and it was wonderful. I'm definitely going to watch that. Arthur? Uh, well, perhaps conforming to type, I, I watched The Diplomat, which is this Netflix series. Ooh, that came out. <laughs> so bad, it's great. Well, it's exactly. one review. Uh, it's sort of bonkers and absurd and there's all kinds of insane plot twists and it ends on a cliffhanger. It's almost as if They'd forgotten to write in a cliffhanger, so they just made a big cliffhanger, which was basically (laughs) irrelevant to the main plot of the story. (laughs) But in spite of all of that, it's got great cast. It's very enjoyable. Endless sort of beautiful, you know, country house settings and all the rest of it. And so... Uh, e- even even with all those uh, caveats I've mentioned, it's, it's probably worth watching. As somebody who knows the territory, were you sitting there going, like, well, that would never happen. I mean, he's rappelling down the side of a mountain there. Why is he not opening a local plastics factory? Well, the, the, the thing that is really confusing is the way that there seems to be endless moments where people are supposedly in meetings with people and then they creep out of back doors and run down little staircases and then find themselves in a completely different place in London, which, you know, having worked in the Foreign Office, I, I'm reasonably certain and is not possible. But oh my God, they didn't give you the superpowers when you were there. That's no, very no, embarrassing no, no. for you. No, no one showed me the, the special underground network of tunnels, which is that, very think, disappointing. That's a civil service grade nine power. Yeah, even I know about it. Like, oh my God, <laughs> I, I'm mortified for you. Oh, well. Alex, what's been uh, taking your mind off the misery? Um, as a segue, um, go go and read up the history of Cliffhanger as a concept because it's really very interesting. I mean, it was named that because in the 30s it were literally... People hanging off a cliff, but but it originates in in Shahrazad's uh, uh, A Thousand and One Nights because the whole idea was that she would end the story at a point yeah. where he'd have to keep her alive yes. for another yeah. day to find out what happened. So the original page turner or cliffhanger, yeah. I guess. Anyway, um, so gardening it's that time of year, yes. um, and and it's particularly wonderful this year because I am one of those people who cannot prune. Okay, I'm really bad at pruning. Every time I cut the smallest twig, I make a face like most people make during a colonoscopy. <laughs> it, I just flinch and look away. It's I hate it because I feel I'm hurting the tree. But this year, I actually did all my pruning uh, about a month ago, like I meant to. And the garden has just absolutely exploded with life and everything is looking healthier than it has for years. And it's 
just utterly wonderful. And you've also disproven the legend of the mandrake. So the plants <laughs> where you're putting them haven't driven you insane that we know of. Right. Uh, well, my um, my escape route is it's not exactly taking you away from the misery because it's a cancer memoir, but it's v- bizarrely very, very funny by Sylvia Patterson, the great music journalist. She was one of my team on Q magazine and her new book is called um, Same Old Girl. And it t- details how at the same time that the business she'd worked in for 30-odd years, music journalism, was dissolving around her. Um, She gets a breast cancer diagnosis and has to deal with it. And she manages to tell this story of terrible privation and misery with an incredible wry sense of humour. And you come out of it um, just not just having felt that you've you've bizarrely read an enjoyable read about one of the least enjoyable things that you could possibly um, uh, endure, but also that, you know, with respect for basic stoicism, um, and I would I'd recommend it enormously. Her, her, her previous book, I'm Not With The Band, it was all about her, um, her experiences interviewing some of the most famous people on the planet and how absurd or um, obnoxious and so occasionally how wonderful and pleasant and um, life of him they can be. And then her next book is about being in and out of North London hospitals with cancer. And bizarrely, they feel like two ends of a, of a, of a kind of a diptych. I really enjoyed it. It's called Same Old Girl and it's by Sylvia Patterson. And that is the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thank you for joining me, Marie Lacant. Thank you. Arthur Snell. Thank you. And Alex Andreo. My pleasure. We're going to be back on Friday or Thursday if you're a Patreon backer. Don't forget, we're also live on stage at the Leicester Square Theatre on Wednesday the 24th of May. Visit leicestersquaretheatre.com for tickets. And Patreon people, look in your inbox. There is a discount code there. We'll see you there on the night. And in the meantime, here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop to play us out. See you next time. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Andrew Harrison with Arthur Snell, Alex Andreu and Marie Leconte. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison. Audio production by me, Robin Lieburn. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Thank you.